Hello, this is UU Todd Phillips, the golden voice of the great Southwest, and you're listening to Lotha's Glory, the hobo jungle of the mind. on the ether now. They travel on high frequencies over the borderlines and barriers of mountain ranges and oceans. When shall we all speak the same language? And do we want to have all the same language? Are we learning a few great signs and passwords? Why should every man be lost for words? The questions are put every day in every tongue. Where are you from, stranger? Where were you born? Got any money? What do you work at? Where's your passport? Who are your people? Well, here we are again at uh, KVMR. This is Utah Phillips. I'm here with Steve Baker, who's the engineer of this Fufra. The little poem at the opening was from The People, Yes, by Carl Sandburg. Definitely a poem for our time. Sit down and read that whole thing when you have time. It's a, it's a magnificent piece of really typically American writing. And, of course, we're in downtown metropolitan Nevada City, California. Nevada City, California, it takes three frogs to stay alive, and two of them got to be doctors. <laughs> Call me Fishbill. <clears throat> I'm just going to sit here with my guitar, my harmonica, and we're ahead, hopefully, full of words and uh, songs, and do this one without uh, any recorded music at all. Well, you okay out there? I'll be coming back east and have a chance to be with some of you fairly soon. Everybody got a job? Suckers. I was born unemployed. That's what God wants for me. <laughs> the great divide nothing around me but the rockies and sky it's there you find me as years go by railroading on the great divide Those of you out there who may have heard me should probably turn to those who may have not, your kin, people you have invited in for a meal, calmly reassure them that this is in fact what happens when I get in front of a microphone. Not much more, this is about it. You will notice no sudden or dramatic change in my instrumental or vocal attack, as it were. It's nice to know that there are some things in mid-20, late 20th century uh, industrial society that uh, don't change very often, and I am one of those. This is nonetheless an American folk song. Did you recognize it as such? You don't hear them much anymore, do you? Don't hear them on your AM radio. Folk singers hardly ever sing them. 
That's because they're boring. Folk music is boring. Whack, fall the die, oh, blow ye winds, high ho, hell, that's boring. But this is a program of folk music. I am a folk singer. You're ostensibly the folk, Nespa. Listen, pay attention. That means we own this song together. It is ours, like the National Park, like the National Forest. We own it together. We have thereby inherited certain social obligations which we will faithfully discharge. We are going to sing this damn song together, boring or not. Got it? Gather on your radios and sing along with old Uter. Uh, and now, you folks out of town, I can't do this. But you folks in town, we have our subscriber list. And those of you who do not sing, I will see to it personally that a Mormon missionary is sent to each of your homes. Railroading on the Great Divide, nothing around me but the Rockies and sky. It's there you'll find me as years go by, railroading on the Great Divide. Try it out. Railroading on the Great Divide, nothing around me but the Rockies and sky. It's there you find me as years go by, railroading on the Great Divide. Great divide, is it? Up there in Montana on the High Line, the Billy Goat, the Burlington Northern Railroad. That's the, the great freight train ride of North America to me. Great divide occurs at the Continental Divide. Occurs up there in Glacier National Park. I first crossed uh, the Great Divide as a young tramp with hobo uh, Railroad Dick Garvey uh, from up there in Kalispell. That is a singular experience in a young tramp's life, crossing the the hump, they call it, for the first time. It's like a sailor's first trip across the equator, fraught with great ritual and massive libation. Um, the, the ritual is when you know you've topped the divide. You get up and lurch to the boxcar door, grab the jam fir- firmly in one hand so you're not pitched out into the unrelieved wilderness, and then... There's no delicate way to put this. Well, yes, there is. You take out your lily and siphon it on the breeze. But then you can spend the rest of your mortal existence visualizing half of your natural bodily fluids flowing down through the Yellowstone River, the Platte River, to the Mississippi, down to the Gulf of Mexico, and the other half joining the small spring rivulets to tiny streams that form the mighty rivers that thunder down to the Pacific and the far Spice Islands beyond. It is a cosmic experience. In 1914, I started to roam out through Wyoming, no money, no home. And I was drifting along with the tide, landed out over the Great Divide. I railroading on the Great Divide, nothing around me but the Rockies and sky. It's there you find me as years go by, railroading on the Great Divide. Speaking of the Great Divide, I want to remind you that this uh, radio show is partly underwritten by the National Hobo Association. Now, most of you don't believe that, or there is such a thing. You think I'm making it up. There is a National Hobo Association. The head honcho is Buzz Potter, a great tramp. They are at, grab your pencil, P.O. Box 706, Niswa, N-I-S-S-W-A, Minnesota, 56468, Utah sent you. They will send you the Hobo Times, a rare magazine, and something you're going to want to put by your toilet and uh, read it every time you take the seat of ease. Where was I? 
Well, local news here. We're accommodating. I'm out in California, in case you didn't know that. Accommodating ourselves to a, a new governor. Uh, 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 people are generally happy because we've got a little bit more liberal governor than the conservative one. I, of course, old Charlie Kelly told me that a liberal is a, a difference between a liberal and a conservative is that a, a liberal will hang you, but from a lower limb. Now, I'm, I'm kind of glad, I'm very glad that those conservatives are gone now. Uh, uh, Governor Pete Wilson and so on. Uh, these these conservatives, especially these religious conservatives, um, uh, crazed by years and years of self-flagellation over real or imagined sins, uh, architect a reality in which the, the solution to every social problem is more punishment, more punishment, bigger prisons. Of course, I can see how the conservative mind would be drawn to penal enlargement. Stick your head out the window and see how it feels. Number nines are coming the fastest on wheels. At 90 an hour, she whistles with pride. Thunders out over the great divide. Now, a railroading on the great divide. Nothing around me but the Rockies and sky. It's there you find me as years go by. Railroading on the Great Divide. Snow on the ground here. A little late in the year for that. I am looking forward to the melt-off, though, so I can get way up in the back, get the garden put in. I, I love to garden. I'm not that I'm a real good hand at grubbing dirt. Don't get me wrong now. Uh, the garden I planted last year, all the plants deliberately and maliciously stunted themselves, the ones the squirrels didn't get. But now my wife long ago gave up the birth control pills because they're dangerous. See, the guy across the street, he grows his corn to the eaves of the barn. Uh, summer or winter, I asked him how he did that. He said it was hormones. Is that possible? I took his word at, word at it. Uh, like, like I told you, my wife long ago had given up the birth control pills because they're dangerous. I took what was left, ground them up with some water real fine, poured them on the plants, killed every last one of them. You ought to see the squirrels, though. Had wonderful zucchini. Apparently it is God's will that the zucchini will grow. Nuclear, holocaust, earthquake, I don't care what, famine, rack, ruin, the damn zucchini is going to grow. I let it grow as big as it wants, and I roll it off to the side of the yard for a wind break. Said, come the fall, come the late summer, people leave bags of zucchini in my back porch like foundling children. I go to SPD, our local uh, supermarket here. I got to lock my car. I come back, some, if I don't, it's stuffed full of somebody's dumb zucchini. Now, like I say, I let it grow as big as it wants. I, one of them I put up on trestles uh, last year, and I hollered it out. I made a canoe, went fishing in it. Beavers ate it right out from under me. Well, I'll varnish it next time. It ought to work. Ah. Uh, well, I rolled off to the side of the yard there. My, uh, my neighbor looked over. He looks over the fence. He said to me, uh, you know, you leave that giant, he called it Hindenburgini. You leave that Hindenburgini, Hindenburgini out here in the hot late summer sun, and it will rot from the inside out and sink into the Mother Earth in a welter of its own festus and smegma. Ah, but, and this is folk wisdom from the Sierra, folks. He said, you take a machete, cut that giant zucchini end, end for end, open, lay it out flat. It will dry in the sun, and you can burn it in your fireplace. 
I had four cord of zucchini laid up for winter. Stick your head out the window and see how it feels. Number nines are coming the fastest on wheels. At 90 an hour, she whistles with pride. Thunders out over the great divide. Ask any old timer around old Cheyenne. Ray Roden, Wyoming is the best in the land. A long steel rail and a short cross tie laid out over the great divide. I rolling on the great divide. Nothing around me but the Rockies and sky. It's there you find me as years go by. Railroading on the great divide. Well, there we are for that. More rural ribbedry, more raucous rusticana, more fecal badinage to start off the day. I I feel as though I need to do this every now and again with just me and my guitar to keep things sort of straight in my head. I mean, I love finding obscure and very interesting and sometimes, to me at least, important recordings uh, to offer to you, but uh, this is not one of those days. I'll sing some songs about... Well, about my my elders, my great teachers, most of them passed away now. I was down playing in Phoenix, Arizona. Now, I think I was. I there is. I couldn't find Phoenix. I couldn't find a Phoenix. I couldn't find a center of it. It wasn't around anything. Uh, closest I got to a real Phoenix was Guadalupe over at the Indian Reservation, right on the edge of town. Well, I needed to go up to Flagstaff to play in Charlie's Saloon there. I wanted to take the back roads, so I went up through Prescott, Arizona. I was going to go visit Katie Lee, uh, an old-time folk singer who lived down in Old Jerome, uh, one of the founders of Earth First, and wrote many, many a good song about about saving the Colorado River. Well, I wanted to seek her out, to to find her. I was driving through Prescott, and I saw a street sign out the window that said, Gail I. Gardner Avenue. Well, I stopped my car. I said, I know that man. I met him near 25 years ago uh, in uh, Montreal, Canada, when the Smithsonian had a a folk life festival up there in the old uh, American Pavilion of the World's Fair. They invited on one week a bunch of cowboy poets and singers up there. Uh, This is before it got fashionable. Uh, And one of those was Gail I. Gardner. And he was an old man then. He was 75 years old then, at least. And he had a, a silver top cane and a real wide, tall Stetson. And he was a small man like Tom Mix. Well, I got to know him. Uh, there I was in Prescott, saw his name on a street sign. I went to the Charlotte Hall Museum, asked the lady behind the desk, Mr. Gardner wouldn't, wouldn't still happen to be alive, would he? She said, oh, yes, he's, he's still alive, but he's ailing bad. He's over in the hospital. We're afraid he'll never go back to the ranch. I went over there and spent the afternoon with him. There he was, sunk down in his wheelchair. Tiny, tiny man. Uh, he had a huge dome of a bald head with uh, liver spots on it, uh, thick glasses, one lens blacked out, the other one magnifying, magnifying an empty socket in a grotesque sort of way. The high desert sun had given him many small skin cancers on his ears and his nose that had to be cut away, visibly diminishing before your eyes. 
but deep inside that pillar of youth and energy aching to burst forth in any, any direction it could still find. Well, he told me he could hardly talk. He taught, he wheezed. He told me he thought the cow pony was the smartest animal that God ever created. I know nothing of horses. I said, Mr. Gardner, what makes you feel that? Well, he said, I had an old cow pony. I got too old to do the work, so retired it from the range. Taught it to point birds. Yeah, point quail. Then I got too old to hunt. I sold off my weapons, sold that horse to a neighbor for what I thought was a good price. Neighbor come back the next day, said he wanted his money back. I said, how's that? He said, well, the horse won't go into the barn. I said, what does it do? I said, well, I get it up to the barn. It just stands stock still with one leg up and its tail stuck straight out. I said to him, you got any chickens there? I said, oh, yeah, I got a hen house right up against the barn. I said, here's what you do. Take your rifle, fire it off. You'll damn missed again. It'll go right in there. Man like that's a sage, you know. You cleave to a sage. Now, why would I go spend half a day with this old, old man, Gail Gardner? Well, years and years and years ago, around the time of the First World War, he, he was on his way to Texas to train as a flyer. He wrote a poem that's known in cow country all over North America. He wrote many a good song, many a good poem. Uh, and that's what he was known for among cowboys, although... Some of those got away from him, as they should. And and people, you'll hear those songs, you hear those poems all in cow country all over North America, and people don't know that they came from Gail I. Gardner. But I did, and I honor, honor him for that. There's one piece that's probably well known more than anything else called Tying Knots to the Devil's Tail. Uh, Mr. Gardner had no use for the oral tradition, oral transmission, where things mold and change uh, as time goes by. He demanded that every word be exactly where he put it. And if he heard somebody like on a recording uh, or at a festival poetry gathering do that with words out of place, he would call them up on the phone and yell and scream at them, jump up and down. Well, now, I sat down on the floor in front of Mr. Gardner. He couldn't raise his head, and I wanted to look up at his face. And I said, Mr. Gardner, you teach me that poem exactly the way you made it, and that's exactly the way I'll do it. So I'll try it. Uh, you wish me luck, huh? Way up high on the siry peaks where the yellow pines grows tall, old Sandy Bob and Buster Jig had a road deer camp last fall. They took their horses and running irons and maybe a dog or two, and loud they'd brand any log-eared calf that come within their view. Any old doggie that flopped long ears and didn't hill up by day got his long ears whittled and his old hide scorched in a most artistic way. One fine day, old Sandy Bob, as he throwed his seagull down, said, I'm tired of cow pyrography. I allows I'll go to town. So they saddles up and hits them a lope, for it weren't no sight of a ride. And them was the days an old cow poke could oil up his insides. They started out at the depot house at the head of Whiskey Row, ended up at Charlie's old 40 drinks below. Then they sets her up and turns her around and goes her the other way. I'll tell you the Lord's forsaken truth. Them boys got drunk that day. As they was headed back to camp and a packin' a pretty good load, who should they meet but the devil himself a-prancin' down the road? He said, you ornery cowboy skunks, you better go hunt your holes, cause I have come up with a hell's rim rock to gather in your souls. Old Sandy Bob said, devil be damned, us boys is kinda tight. You ain't gonna gather no cowboy's souls without some kind of a fight. 
So Sandy Bob punched a hole in his rope, and he throwed it straight and true, lapped it around the devil's horns, took up his dallies, too. Now Buster Jig was a Rietta man with his gut line coiled up neat. He shook it out, built him a loop, and lassoed the devil's hind feet. So they stretched him out, tailed him down while the irons was a-getting hot, cropped and swallow-forked his ears, branded him up a lot. They pruned his horns with a deer-horn saw, tied knots in his tail for a joke, and then rode off and left him there necked up to a black jack oak. Well, if you're ever up in the siry peaks and you hear one hell of a wail, it's only the devil himself bellering about the knots tied in his tail. <laughs> Tying knots from the devil's tail. Gail I. Gardner. And now that interesting story that he told me about that was that... Um, you see, he took his name, uh, Buster J. Uh, Gail Gardner's father was John I. Gardner, who ran the dry goods store there in Prescott, and his initials were J.I.G. So his son, Gail, was called Buster Jig. So that's actually he's writing about himself. Um, there was a legendary cowboy down there, and um, the Texas Bob, the name of Texas Bob, so they... They, the the other kid, uh, Sandy Bob, took his name from his father. Texas Bob Heckle was his father's name. So he was writing about a childhood, uh, a childhood recollection. Now, well, that recollection was, was more interesting than that. When they were little kids, they'd have the habit of riding off up into the Sierra Prieta, which is what the Siri Peets are. And he said that going all the way back to, to Indian times, that the kids were frightened away from riding in those hills because of the sudden flash floods. And the way that they frightened you away was by telling you that the devil was up there. And if you rode up there, that he would uh, that he would catch you and carry you off. That's part of the story that's never been told and, and very little known. Well, now, who else? Melman. San Francisco Phil Melman. <laughs> I was in... Chicago, visiting my union headquarters, Industrial Workers of the World, IWW Wobblies. I've been a member of that for a little better than 40 years. I was visiting the editor of our newspaper, old Fred Thompson, who's passed away long since, a brilliant and a keen mind. Fred said, you know, we got people joining this union again. we got a lot of young, young people in it. Why, we used to have great soapboxers, people who could get out and speak on the street, who could orate. Uh, we need to teach our young ones how to do that. He said, now, when I was in the pen out in, out in uh, San Quentin Federal Penitentiary, 1920 to about 25, criminal, criminal syndicalism bust, my cellmate was, uh, was, was cell, Phil Melman. He was a great soapboxer. Now, I think he must still be alive out there. He's too, too ornery to die. You're traveling in the West now. You seek him out, see if you can find him, and, and get him to teach some of our young ones about what this union is all about and what soapboxing is. Well, I began to hear persistent rumors of a fellow on, the, on the, the mission on the skids there in San Francisco named Phil Melman. We found him. Walk-up room, neat as a pin, bare wire bulb. There was San Francisco Phil Melman. Now, when we found him... He thought that he was the only real wobbly, the only real wobbly left alive, that all the others had uh, quit or were dead or had gone to jail. In spite of believing that he was the only wobbly, real wobbly still alive, every May Day, which is the real Labor Day if you got any sense, every May Day, Phil Melman would take a soapbox, get on the end, Judah, uh, train, t change trains, go up to San Francisco State University, set that soapbox up outdoors with the students flowing past, sporting their books like young asses, and he would wave his arms and windmill and screech at them. They wouldn't pay any attention to him. All right. 
Well, I had a car there in California, in San Francisco. And some May days, I would make sure that I was there so that I could pick up Phil Melman and his box, drive up to San Francisco State University. I had my guitar so I could do it old style. I could flang on the guitar, and I could shill up a crowd singing Joe Hill songs, Power in the Union, uh, Casey Jones, the Union Scab. I got a couple hundred students gathered around in a circle wondering what the ruckus was. As soon as I got them gathered, I'd say, Okay, Melman, go get them. Well, by this time, he was kind of backed up like bad plumbing. There's a whole lot in him that had been on hold for many, many years, and it all came out at once. It was like a machine gun. I can hear him. Fellow workers, the industrial workers, the world's organized, the entire working class. What is the working class, fellow workers? Why, the working class is anybody that has a boss and works for wages. You've got a boss, you're working for wages. doesn't matter if you're a college professor or a ditch digger. You're in the working class, you better be proud of it. Why, the middle class is just a joke made up of the boss to keep us fighting against each other. Now, the industrial workers, the world's organized, the working class, all semi-skilled, skilled and unskilled workers into one big union, the OBU. we got the OBU, we'll have a general strike. Strike like that will last about half an hour. Then we'll take this thing apart and put it together so it makes more sense. With the means of production in the hands of producers, producers instead of profit, create abundance for workers and nothing for parasites. Thank you. Well, he was pure hell. Horace Melman said he always talks fast because when you're on a street corner in a hostile city, the cops would be on their way. You had to get everything out uh, before they came so that you could move on to another corner and do it all over again. Yeah, last time I saw Phil Melman alive, we carried him up three flights of stairs. He couldn't walk there at the plowshares in San Francisco. Fella came backstage and said, Fellow worker Melman is out in front. So I went out and knelt down by his chair. He said, Hi, Melman, it's you, Tom. Well, he said, <clears throat> I said, Remember San Francisco State? I'd sing and you'd talk. Well, he opened his eye, cocked, cocked his head, said, Oh, yeah, you were lousy. Melman, my fellow worker. Well, we were up there in Puget Sound. A bunch of uh, uh, trade unionists uh, and the Labor Historical Society up there were memorializing the Verona, the voyage of the Verona. When the Wobblies in 1916 took uh, strike relief to, in a shingle weaver strike up to Everett, Washington, there on the Sound. And, of course, the deck was raked with gunfire by Sheriff, M Sheriff McRae and his deputies, and a lot of the Wobblies were killed. So we were memorializing that. There are a number of young Wobblies in that bunch. I had been invited along to sing union songs. One of them had Melman's ashes in a cigar box. I didn't know he'd passed away. I got the young ones out onto the fantail of the boat, away from the rest. Got them in a circle, and I told them Melman's stories. They hadn't known him. Then every one of those young wobblies put their hand in that cigar box, took a handful of ashes, and strewed them out onto Puget Sound. I got, got my hand in the box and said, I've got you, Melman. Lousy, huh? Foo! <laughs> Here's a song old Melman knew on the skids up there in Seattle about taking the lumber barges up uh, Lake Chelan to the logging camps on the high peaks of the Cascades. It's up the ramp to the lumber camp with a sick and aching head. I blowed another winter's stake and I got the gyms instead. It seems I'll never learn the truth that's written plain as day. The more they try to welcome you, the more they make it pay. It blanket stiff and jungle hound and pitch him out the door. Howdy, Jack, old timer, when you got the price for more. Now the boat is getting rocky and I ain't got a bunk. Not a rare, a cheering liquor, just a turkey full of junk. 
and it's all of my possessions is what I can carry round. I blowed the rest on the skid roads of a hundred jippo towns. It's lumberjack and timber beast, and give these bums a ride. Have one on the house, old boy, when you're stepping with the tide. Oh, the chokers will be heavy, just as heavy, just as cold. When the hooker gives the highball, we start to dig for gold. And I'll curse the skid road up and down with its rotten drunken tune. But then, of course, I'll up and make another trip next June. It blanket stiff and jungle hound and pitch him out the door. Howdy, Jack, old timer, when you got the price for more. I was in Chicago, invited to play at a nightclub. Can you see me at a nightclub? The old quiet night up on Belmont. Uh, and was, I, I approached the whole idea with some trepidation. Stan Kenton had played there the night before, for heaven's sake. Well, I went down there about 3 o'clock in the afternoon uh, to look at the place. I was scared. I walked up those long, dark stairs, fought my way past the guard dogs. The janitor had taken the garbage out. And he was sitting there alone in the, in the big hall up on the high stage at a grand piano, nothing but the night light on, so he couldn't see me standing in the shadows. There was a janitor playing the piano. He was playing the Moonlight Sonata for himself, very softly, beautifully. Well, he began to pound the piano. And in, uh, when I saw that he was playing with only one hand, the, the right arm was gone about halfway up. He'd been playing with one hand. He'd been pound the piano. Uh, and sing in a rumbling baritone voice the powerful music of the Spanish Civil War, Los Cuatros Generales, the White Cliffs of Gandesa, Harama Valley. That's the war that if, if we'd got involved in it, that's the war that if we had, had supported the Republic, might have prevented the Second World War. If we'd take a stand against the Nazis and against Mussolini then, we might have, be, might have been able to stop the whole Second World War. The fellow playing the piano was Ed Belchowski. Eddie Belchowski had been a concert pianist as a young man, brilliant future. Went to Spain with the Abraham Lincoln Brigade to fight against Franco and the fascists. Crossing the Abro River, he got his arm shattered and was amputated later on. He haunted the alleys of Chicago for years, a mad poet, alcoholic, drug addict. Ah, he took me on many good walking tours of the alleys of Chicago. He straightened himself out, got the job at the quiet night. Richard Harding was good to him, so he'd have a grand piano to practice at. And I don't, just don't mean the songs of the Spanish Civil War. He could play the Bakshikon one-handed, Liszt's and Haydn's left-hand variations. He became a good friend, a powerful friend. He taught me, taught me important things about endurance, about holding on, about holding on. Well, I left Chicago to go over to Rockford and play. And a week later, I got a call from... Uh, Ron Sanfield, who managed the club, and he told me that Ed Belchowski had passed away. I sat down and I wrote him a death song. A week after that, I got a call from Eddie. First thing I asked him was, hey, Ed, where are you calling from? I said he was calling from Chicago. I said, hell, dead or in Chicago. It's all the same to me, fella. 
And then a week after that, there I was back in the quiet night, sitting on a bar stool with Ed Belchowski across from me, had a chance to sing him his death song. He was amused. Well, it's not too long ago that Ed Belchowski was found on the subway tracks there in Chicago. So I can sing for him now, huh? Standing in your shadow, afraid to go outside. I could listen to your music all night long. But the world keeps on changing, there's still no place to hide. I know that we can change it with a song. One hand on the keyboard and moonlight fills the room. One hand on the Abro, no regrets. One hand on tomorrow, reaching for the sun. One hand on the sun that never sets. The white cliffs of Gandesa lie sleeping in the rain. I guess some places always have their kings. And now I hear you singing the forgotten songs of Spain. I wish we could remember all those things. One hand on the keyboard and moonlight fills the room. One hand on the Abro, no regrets. One hand on tomorrow, reaching for the sun. One hand on the sun that never sets. I thought that I had trouble when I was on the loose. <laughs> oh, that must have been a carnival instead. And now I hear our children, they're singing, what's the use? Well, they drop a little something for their head. Oh, one hand on the keyboard and moonlight fills the room. One hand on the Abro, no regrets. One hand on tomorrow, reaching for the sun. One hand on the sun that never sets. One hand on the sun that never sets. Eddie Belchowski. Do you know how much I miss him? I miss them all. I miss all my elders who were my great teachers. You know, that was my... That was my college. Yeah, I, I had the opportunity to go to college. I, I went as far as high school. I had the opportunity, but I wasn't ready. I went into the Army instead. I boomed about, tramped on the freight trains. I, I encountered my elders. I encountered those people who had led extraordinary lives, could, could never be lived again, gave their whole life to the forest, gave their whole life to the hard rock mines in Butte, to the wheat harvest, to the factory. Fetched up on the skids on short money in the missions and the flop houses. Some of them, the best working years before pensions and Social Security. Burnt out, many alcoholics. But, oh, they shared their lives with me. Once I was able to convince them that I was asking real questions, honest questions, not just for human interest, not just to get something out of them. And they loved that, that I would ask real questions because, you know, I needed real answers. I was out in the world trying to get myself a job, and I'd had, I didn't know how to get a job. 
When I was in high school, they gave me the history of the ruling class, the people that owned the wealth of the country, never the history of the people that created it, the people who knew how to organize, who knew how to control the conditions of their labor. I had to learn that from my elders. No thanks to the schools. No thanks to the mass media. No, sir. And I learned. I'm right, I did. I like to say most of my elders have passed on, and that isn't to say that I don't have heroes among the uh, among the young ones. I don't have. I do have heroes among the young ones. I'll sing you a song about or two. One of those. I mean, we've been struggling here in California to save the old growth redwoods, to cop to stop the illegal cutting of trees, to stop the death of ecosystems. And we've had to put forth the idea again and again and again that we're not interested in a tree museum. We're interested in preserving an entire ecosystem. And a lot of people gone to the wall to make that happen. One of those was out in the forest monitoring monitoring a timber harvest. A fellow by the name of of David Chain, they called him Gypsy. A tree was felled, it fell on him, and it killed him. Let's sing a song for Gypsy. Uh, these old songs, these ideas, you think they originate, each generation thinks they originate with us, with this generation. Well, they don't. The ideas in this song go all the way back to the 1640s uh, with uh, Wynne Stanley. And, and the time of the diggers. It was uh, Leon Rosselson who took what was left of Win Stanley's speeches and put them together and made them into this ballad song. In 1649 to St. George's Hill, a ragged band they called the diggers came to show the people's will. They defied the landlords, they defied the laws, they were the dispossessed reclaiming what was theirs. We come in peace, they said, to dig and sow. We come to work the lands in common and to make the wastelands grow. This earth divided, we shall make whole, so it will be a common treasury for all. The sin of property we do disdain. No one has any right to buy or sell the earth for private gain. By death or murder, they took the land. Now everywhere the laws spring up at their command. They make the laws to chain us well. Their clergy dazzle us with heaven, and they damn us into hell. We will not worship the God they serve, the God of greed who feeds the rich while poor folks starve. We live, we work together, we need no swords. We will not bow unto the masters, nor pay rents unto the lords. We are free people, though we are poor. You diggers all stand up for glory, stand up now. From the from the men of property the order came. They sent the higher men and troopers to wipe out the diggers' claim, tear down their cottages, destroy their corn. They were dispersed only, the vision lingers on. You poor take courage, you rich take care. This earth was made a common treasury for everyone to share. All things in common, all people one. They came in peace, the order came to cut them down. The sin of property we do disdain. No one has any right to buy or sell the earth for private gain. This earth divided, we shall make whole. So it will be a common treasury for all. The Digger's Song for Gypsy, for David Chain. Uh, well, I don't know how much longer we have to go here. Hey, Steve, how much longer do I have to pull over here? Fifteen. Fifteen minutes? Lord God Almighty, that's a whole lifetime here. Well, let's see. 
I'll sing you a song that my mother taught me. I learned it at my mother's knee and other joints. You know, that's that low bluegrass humor. Um, my mother used uh, labor songs. She was It was in the labor movement. She used labor songs as bedtime songs for us. It was kind of a chore. You'd have a hard day in kindergarten trying to go to sleep. Your mother's sitting on the end of the bed yelling, singing, we're going to roll, we're going to roll, we're going to roll at you. And, you know, I say, hey, Mom, knock it off. Go away. I'm trying to sleep. Well... This is a song that she taught me a long, long time ago. It was Mark Twain who said, uh, those of you who are inclined to worry have the widest selection in history. <laughs> so how much am I supposed to worry? Am I supposed to spend the rest of my life worrying? Uh, there's, there's no career moves in folk music. Want to make a million dollars in folk music? Start out with two million. <laughs> I stopped worrying I, here in Nevada City. I opened a mail-order tattoo parlor. It's mainly for people with artificial limbs. They mail them in. I have a wood-burning set. Death before dishonor, Mom. And I mail it back to them. Hell, my father, during the Great Depression, made a living for us starving families sta- uh, standing on windy street corners in Cleveland, Ohio, selling battery-powered paperweights. Uh, he'd just say, well, uh, when she starts to hover, change the batteries, she'll settle right back down. Okay, Mom. I was born long ago in 1894. I had many a panic I will own. I've been hungry, I've been cold, ah, but now I'm getting old. But the worst I've seen was 1931. Oh, those beans, bacon, and gravy, they almost drive me crazy. I eat them till I see them in my dreams. Now when I wake up in the morning and another day is dawning, I know I'll have another mess of beans. We have hooverized on butter and for milk there's only water. I haven't seen a steak in many a day. As for pies and cakes and jellies, well, we substitute sow bellies, for which we have to work the county road each day. Oh, those beans, bacon, and gravy, they almost drive me crazy. I eat them till I see them in my dreams. When I wake up in the morning and another day is dawning, I know I'll have another mess of beans. If there ever comes a time that I have more than a dime, they'll have to keep me under lock and key. Ah, cause I ain't been broke so long I can only sing this song about us workers and our misery. Oh, those beans, bacon, and gravy, they almost drive me crazy. I eat them till I see them in my dreams. When I wake up in the morning and another day is dawning, I know I'll have enough the best of beans. Beans, bacon, and gravy. Now, those of you who are listening closely notice that I make mistakes. If I don't sing these songs, you know, they tend to fade from my memory, but I, I always make mistakes when I sing and play. There, there are people in every audience who do nothing but look for mistakes, and I'm trying to please everybody. Um, yeah, my mother did sing. My mother used to sing a song. You know how little kids are, they... You follow your mother around, and you mimic their walk. You, you imitate them. And I, I learned that song. Well, my mother passed on, and I was out in the world. And it's years later I finally discovered what that song really meant. So I stopped singing it. 
Moving along, here's a, another song, one that I always like to, to finish up things with. This is old uh, tramp song, one of the oldest tramp songs. Haywire Mac McClintock wrote this song. Oh, starting about 1900, railroad engineer, union organizer for the industrial workers of the world. I'll sing this one in honor of my old friend Frying Pan Jack, about whom I have spoken often. Coming down out of Keddy, the Feather River Canyon once, I shared a, a, a winter fire with uh, Fry Pan Jack before he went south. Sat around his fire. Jack, he started tramping in 1927. He said, I learned young that the only real life I have is the life of my brain. But if it's true, the only real life I have is the life of my brain. What sense does it make to hand that brain to somebody for eight hours a day for their particular use on the presumption that at the end of the day they'll give it back in an unmutilated condition? Fat chance. Yeah. He said... I told myself, I learned when I was young, if I cannot dictate the conditions of my labor, I will henceforth cease to work. <laughs> you don't have to go to college to figure these things out. Well, he took off pipe on the stem, big Montana bedroll, a head full of words, songs. He didn't make up songs or poems. He found them and then scattered them about for people like me to learn and put back to work. He was old enough to remember the sway rods under the boxcars, riding the rods... A poem, The Two Bums. The bum on the rods is hunted down as an enemy of mankind. The other is driven around to his club as fetid, wined, and dined. And they who curse the bum on the rods as the essence of all that's bad will greet the other with a winning smile and extend the hand so glad. The bum on the rods is a social flea who gets an occasional bite. The bum on the plush is a social leech blood-sucking day and night. The bum on the rods is a load so light that his weight we scarcely feel, but it takes the labor of dozens of folks to furnish the other a meal. As long as we sanction the bum on the plush, the other will always be there, but rid ourselves of the bum on the plush and the other will disappear. Then make an intelligent, organized kick. Get rid of the weights that crush. Don't worry about the bum on the rods. Get rid of the bum on the plush. Oh, yeah. Oh, why don't you work? Like other folks do. How can I get a job when you're holding down too? Hallelujah, I'm a bum. Hallelujah, bum again. Hallelujah, give us a handout to revive us again. You there in your kitchens, you there gathered around your radios, listening to this foo for all. It's hallelujah, I'm a bum. Hallelujah, bum again. Hallelujah, give us a handout to revive us again. Hallelujah, I'm a bum. Hallelujah, bomb again. Hallelujah, give us a handout to revive us again. Say, that's pretty good. Oh, I went to a house and I knocked on a door. A lady said, Scrambum, you've been here before. Hallelujah, I'm a bum. Hallelujah, bomb again. Hallelujah, give us a handout to revive us again. Yeah, I went to that house and I asked for some bread. Her lady said, Scrambum, the baker is dead. Hallelujah, I'm a bum. Hallelujah, bum again. Hallelujah, give us a handout to revive us again. So, sung to an old hymn tune. Uh, wobbly song. Wobblies like to steal the hymns because they were pretty. Changed the words so they made more sense. Besides, it's appropriate here where I am uh, to sing hymn songs. I, I broadcast this over KVMR on Sunday between 11 and 12. I picked that time figuring 
that most people go to church between 10 and 11, I get them at 11 and am able to put them through a little rehab. Normally at 11, I'd be over at church myself. It would be the Unitarian Universalist Community of the Mountains, of which I am a founder. We rented an old mortuary, Hooper and Weaver Mortuary, but it's got a chapel, make a pretty good church. Uh, I've been a Unitarian for over 40 years. How do you know if you're a Unitarian? Damn it. Uh, uh, There aren't any identifying marks as with Jewish males. Uh, no psychic scars from the Baltimore cataclysm. Maybe if you, if you drink a lot of coffee and know how to run, run a mimeograph, you're a, you're a Unitarian. We have dubbed our old Hooper and Weaver mortuary our person of intellectual solace, uh, a true Unitarian church. I, I teach re- religious education. I do uh, a Unitarian non-competitive games. I teach, for instance, Committee of the Mountain where the kids sit around on the rock and discuss how they're going to share power until the wine and the brie run out. We do baptism by Emerson. Uh, interesting thing. I, I write a, a, a liberals' folk songs for the Unitarian hymnals, you know. Uh, let's see. Um, I'm going down the road feeling... Uh, I'm going down the road feeling... Uh, I'm going down the road feeling... Well, you know... I probably shouldn't be treated this way. Yeah, it's a, it's a liberal sort of, or there was. Oh, which side am I on? Which side am I on? Like that, or oh, we would rather, rather not be moved. It's kind of a, a, a ambivalent sort of songs, you know. The commitment is there, but uh, nah, don't look back and see if anybody's following you. Um, where was I? Oh, yes, I was going to sing a verse to this song. Oh, I like my boss. He's a good friend of mine. That's why I'm starving out on the bread line. Hallelujah, I'm a bum. Hallelujah, bum again. Hallelujah, give us a handout to revive us again. Whenever I get all the money I earn, hey, the boss will be broken to work he must turn. Hallelujah, I'm a bum. Hallelujah, bum again. Hallelujah, give us a handout to revive us again. My elders, that's what this program has mainly been about. Been trying to write a book for some years about old Idaho Blackie up there in the panhandle of Idaho. Wrote for the One Big Union Monthly back in the 1930s. I used to pull in my wood at his wood lot. Uh, He got too old to work in the forest, you know. Settled down in his uh, little holding, his little cabin up there in Hayden Lake, Idaho. Unfortunately, his place butts up against a compound of the Church of Aryan Nations, those neo-Nazis that moved in up there, Reverend Butler and his crowd. This is not a marriage made in heaven, you know. I went over there to see if uh, Idaho Blackie was alive. He was out there duck-hunting from his front porch. Well, like I say, he's too old to go into the forest. He used to go into the forest with a shotgun and a case of whiskey. He'd get so high he could go duck-hunting with a rake. There he was, blazing away. Got the duck, but it fell into the compound of the Church of Aryan Nations. Well, Blackie got up real painful. He's in advanced stages of crusty old farthood. Hobbled around the fence toward uh, their church. These neo-Nazis pretend to be Christians, but then most Christians do. And there were they, there was there was their school, grades one through eight, and the little ki- fascist kids were out there playing with their Klaus Barbie dolls. 
Somebody's got to say these things. Well, he went to lay hold of the duck. Out of the back of the church flew, flew Reverend Butler, the co-founder of that benighted denomination, and no spring chicken himself. There he was in his suntans, his jack boots, his, his uh, Sam Brown belt, armband, little 30-mission crush cap with a patent leather, leather bill on it. Laid hold of that duck and allowed how as whatever the Lord chose to deliver up on that patch of ground belonged to the Church of Aryan Nations. Well, they altercated some was fun to watch. Got to be rancorous, though. And finally, Reverend Butler drew himself up in all of his Prussian majesty and announced that they were going to settle this in the manner of true Aryan gentlemen. He said, we are going to take turns kicking each other in... There's, there is a delicate way to put this. We're going to take turns kicking each other in our magic parts. Each other's magic parts, for you catch my drift. And you, sir, as it was your shot that felled the bird, will have first crack at it. Well, Idaho Blackie tottered back three or four feet, reached down into some private reservoir of his soul for energy hoarded for just this occasion, flew forward, delivered a right smart kick to Reverend Butler's magic parts, cast him to the ground in a fit of doom and vituperation, flopping around like a fish, blanched out, turned completely white, which is what he'd been trying to do all his life anyway. Finally dug his heels into the ground, inched himself over into a, a, a pine, gradually levering himself to a standing position, rocking back and forth, heel to toe, preparing to have at Idaho Blackie. Blackie turned to him and said, It's okay. You can keep the duck. I went to a bar and I asked for a drink. He gave me a glass and he showed me the sink. Hallelujah, I'm a bum. Hallelujah, bum again. Hallelujah, give us a handout to revive us again. Yeah, and I like Jim Hill, a good friend of mine. That's why I'm booming down Jim Hill's main line. Hallelujah, I'm a bum. Hallelujah, bum again. Hallelujah, give us a handout to revive us again. Go with your love to the fields. Lie easy in the shade. Pledge allegiance to whatever is nighest your thoughts. When the generals and politicos have learned to predict the motions of your mind, lose it. Be like the fox who makes more tracks than necessary. Some in the wrong direction. Practice resurrection. Hallelujah, I'm a bum. Hallelujah, bum again. Hallelujah, give us a handout to revive us again. Oh, why don't you save all the money you earn? If I didn't eat, I'd have money to burn. Hallelujah, I'm a bum. Hallelujah, bum again. Hallelujah, give us a handout to revive us again. for being along with us on this ride. My name is Yu Utah Phillips. I am the golden voice of the great Southwest, and you've been listening to Loafer's Glory, the hobo jungle of the mind. A poem from Eddie Belchowski. As you pass each fence and door, I see you pass. The wind, loud alley, and the dog you hear, I hear. You eat and touch, and I am pleasantly nourished. And so together we are free to act alone, or to come once more as strangers to each other. <laughs> 